I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing China's engagement with the Global South, particularly the Middle East. What are China's goals and interests in the region? What is China's position in the current Israel-Hamas conflict? Here to discuss this and more is Dr. Don Murphy, the author of the book China's Rise in the Global South: The Middle East, Africa, and Beijing's Alternative World Order. Professor Murphy is an associate professor of national security strategy at the U.S. National War College. She specializes in Chinese foreign policy and domestic politics and U.S.-China relations. Her research analyzes China's interests as a rising global power and its behavior toward the existing international order. The views that she will share with us today will be her own and do not represent that of the National War College or the U.S. Department of Defense. Given the rapid changing situation on the ground in the Middle East. It is important to note that this podcast was recorded on November six, twenty twenty-three. So, Don, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Bonnie. There's obviously a lot to discuss today with respect to what's happening in the Middle East, as well as how do we understand China's position on the current Israel-Hamas conflict. But maybe before we go to that, it would be interesting to get a bit more background in terms of what drives China's interest in the global South broadly, and particularly in the Middle East. So there's many different factors driving China's behavior. I would say the most important would actually be access to resources and markets, and that opportunities for Chinese businesses in the Middle East, in particular, but in the global South more broadly, really are just as important as the resources that are being pursued. Another important interest is. Fostering support for China in the international system, so that could be in the United Nations or in the BRICS, in the G20, in other organizations, in the World Trade Organization. But they very much want support from countries in the Middle East and the broader global South in those forums. Another important interest is ensuring relative silence from countries in the global South. About China's behavior in Xinjiang, they also want to advocate for developing country causes. And what I mean by this is that if you think back to the Mao era, China saw itself as a leader of the third world. That evolved into being a leader of the developing world, and now a leader of the global south. But they very much see themselves as having interests in common with countries in the Middle East and in the global south more broadly. Another important interest is safeguarding China's citizens and businesses in these regions, and this has been a growing concern. I think you're probably familiar. In 2011, they had to evacuate out 35,000 citizens from Libya when there was civil war. They had similar situations in Yemen, in Syria, in other conflict areas, and in other ways, Chinese citizens have been targeted by terrorists, by kidnappers, by other issues. And so they want to be able to protect their citizens and businesses. And finally, increasingly, China wants to have support from countries in the Middle East and in the global South more broadly for its stance on issues in Asia Pacific. So this could be wanting support for its stance on South China Sea issues, or in relation to its behavior in Hong Kong, or even the longstanding issue of its stance regarding Taiwan, which this predates and goes back all the way to the. Mao era, but but I would say those are, are the primary drivers of China's interactions with the global South and the Middle East. 
Don, when you look at the global South as a whole, how important is the Middle East to China? For example, you were talking about one of the main drivers as access to resources and markets. How important is the Middle East as a source of resource to China? It's quite important. You know, over half of their oil imports are actually coming from the Middle East. But I would say it's actually important for some other reasons as well, especially when you look at the Arab Gulf. I think China sees this in many ways as kind of the future in that their economic priorities and strategy complement in a very unique way the vision that Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates or other countries in the Arab Gulf have of their economies and their societies going forward. And when you combine that with the wealth in the Arab Gulf and the willingness of those countries to cooperate in various types of technological research or other types of projects, I would say that the Arab Gulf is quite important. But the Middle East, as you said, for resources, it is an important region for China. And when we look at China's engagement with the region, what countries are China closest to right now? And do we see a sense of China prioritizing relations with certain countries in the Middle East over others? Or is China relatively even-handed across the board? So I think it's important first to talk a little bit about China's kind of broader engagement with the Middle East and then talk about specific countries. So I would say that they've had this kind of linear expansion of their relations with the region. And now for most of the countries in the Middle East, China is the primary economic partner and is an increasingly important political partner. That said, They don't really have the same security role that the U.S. does on providing security guarantees. But their approach, rather than picking specific countries or picking sides between countries, has been to attempt to develop positive relations with every single country in the Middle East on a bilateral basis, but also to have strong relations with multilateral institutions. So the African Union or the League of Arab States or the Gulf Cooperation Council. And so they've attempted to be very balanced and have a situation now where they have positive relations with the Arab states, Iran, Turkey, and Israel. That said, although they're trying to have good relations with everyone in the region, I do think in recent years you've seen a particular focus on leading regional powers. So that would be Saudi, the Emirates, Egypt, Iran, and Turkey. And as I said earlier, I do think there's been a bit of a shift over time. If you go back to before 2010, I think you could make the argument that China saw North Africa and the rest of the Middle East as equal. When you did interviews, for example, they would bring up that Egypt and Saudi were the leaders of the Arab world and really tried to emphasize that. But in the wake of the Arab awakening, you definitely I see this shift towards the Arab Gulf for the reasons that I described earlier. But also, I think there's a deep concern regarding instability that developed in North Africa over time. So if China is picking one sub-region in the Middle East, I would say it's the Arab Gulf. 
And I also should say that these comments, I think, are all relevant for before October 7th. But since October 7th, and I know we'll talk about this a bit later, there is concern expressed from the Israeli government regarding China's recent statements in relation to the Israel-Hamas conflict. But before October 7th, I think you could confidently argue that China had positive relations with every country in the Middle East, including Israel. Let's discuss Israel. When you mentioned China's focus on developing relations with leading regional powers, I noticed you did not mention Israel. How has China's relationship with Israel been historically? And I actually, I should have mentioned Israel. My apologies for not including that. But I, I do think that China's approach to Israel has been a bit different from the standpoint that Israel's not encompassed in one of the cooperation forums. China doesn't have a strategic partnership with Israel in the way that it has with the other major regional countries. And China has arguably had a relatively Palestinian-leaning stance on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. All of that said, since 1992, China has been building its economic relations with Israel and has had quite constructive and positive political relations. And I very much saw in, in many ways Israel's exclusion from some of those other foreign policy tools was really more because Arab states were emphasizing concerns regarding Israel or concerns regarding the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. But when you looked at actual relations between Israel and China, you had very strong levels of economic engagement and technical cooperation and other types of um, interaction that was very similar to what China had with the other major regional countries in the Middle East. Great, thank you. I was wondering if you could compare how you view China's approach to the Middle East as differing from that of the United States. You suggested earlier that much of China's ties to the region were on the economic and political side, and you did not mention much on the military side. Is that a major difference in terms of the United States has more military ties to the region? Yes. So I think there's several ways I would differentiate China's role in the Middle East compared to the U.S. So one is that at least China portrays itself as not picking sides. And so when we talk later about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, we can talk about the, the Palestinian-leaning nature of some of their behavior in relation to that conflict. But in general, their approach is to not pick sides and to have positive relations with every single country in the region. And that does stand in contrast with the U.S.'s very strong relationship with Israel, as well as an adversarial approach towards Iran. Another difference in approach would be that China emphasizes very strongly non-intervention and sovereignty as the, the core normative foundation of its relations with the region. As you said, one big difference, I would say, is that China does not appear, at least up to this point, does not appear to want to play the same type of security role that the U.S. does. So it doesn't seem willing to provide security guarantees or, or desiring to have, you know, a, a large facing presence or, you know, increasing its military or security presence in any substantial way in the region. And I think that's something at least that's come out in my interviewing over the last year or so while I was in Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and Egypt, that countries in the region also don't expect China to play the security role. They don't see China in that way. They see China more as an economic and political actor. I think those would be the primary differences between the U.S. and China's approach. 
Thank you, Don. In your book, you mentioned that China is trying to construct an alternative world order in the Middle East and Africa. What would you describe as the difference between this world order that China wants and what we currently have in the Middle East? So the first thing I should say is I very much see that China's been building this order over many decades, and and really the original purpose of the elements of order that they were building, I think they very much viewed it as a complement to the current order, not necessarily something that would displace the order. But if the order broadly defined either unravels, or if China is excluded from the existing order, this other order could replace it. And so really what I tend to focus on from an order standpoint is much more in the economic and political and and foreign aid realm where they're building order. And sometimes that order is really outside of the liberal order and sometimes it's inside. And I think it's probably most useful for me to just give a few examples of the elements of this order. So one is cooperation forums that China has built two that really cover the Middle East the China Arab States Cooperation Forum that was established in 2004, as well as the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation that was established in, in 2000. Obviously, that includes North Africa. These are the primarily multilateral mechanisms that China uses to coordinate with these regions across a broad range of functional issues. The political norms that underlie these cooperation forums are the five principles of peaceful coexistence, which is a very strict interpretation of Westphalian sovereignty. Another important norm is South-South cooperation. And in the Arab States Cooperation Forum, support for the Palestinians is a very important element of that organization and of the declarations and the activities. On the economic side, the norms that underlie these cooperation forums tend to be a heavy level of state involvement in the economic activity in the forums. Another important piece of the forums are foreign aid, which I think you're obviously familiar with the fact that Chinese foreign aid has many economic conditions, but lacks the political conditionality of Western aid. And then on the security side, there are some security aspects of these cooperation forums, but they very much focus on peacekeeping and anti-piracy and nuclear non-proliferation and combating terrorism. So those are two cooperation forms. Another one that increasingly is including the Middle East that I cover in my book, but not in as much detail, is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And that originally included China, Russia, Central Asian states, as well as India and Pakistan. And most recently, Iran joined as a formal member. Turkey is moving towards membership. And you also have five out of six of the Gulf Cooperation Council countries are strategic dialogue partners, and Egypt also is a dialogue partner. So this cooperation forum, the SCO, also is increasingly incorporating the Middle East. So at this point, every single country in the Middle East, except for Israel, is part of one of these forums, and in some cases, like Egypt, part of three of these forums. Another element of order would be strategic partnerships. And I think the audience is probably quite familiar with the fact that strategic partnerships are not an alliance. They aren't a mutual defense treaty. They're just an articulation that China wants to have robust economic and political relations with countries on a bilateral basis. So China's established these strategic partnerships with every major country in the Middle East, except for Israel, and also has a strategic partnership with the League of Arab States, with the African Union, as well as with the Gulf Cooperation Council. 
Another element of order would be that China is establishing free trade agreements. It's already signed one with Mauritius in Africa. It's negotiating one with the Gulf Cooperation Council and one with Israel and one with Palestine, as well as they're actually expressing an interest in having a free trade agreement with the African continental free trade area. So why this is important is if all of these free trade agreements are signed, China will have these arrangements in place basically with most of the Middle East, as well as the entire continent of Africa. And then another element of order would be the Belt and Road Initiative, which I see very much as an umbrella concept that encompasses many other aspects of order that China's developing. But over time, China's increasingly articulating the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, the Global Civilizational Initiative, as trying to be clear about what it's attempting to accomplish with Belt and Road. So these are just a few examples, but there's many different elements of order that China is building that if the current order with the West is no longer viable, they've already established these platforms to have incredibly robust relations economically, politically, you know, in foreign aid and in other functional areas with countries in the Middle East and much of the global South. Wow, thank you, Don. This is such a comprehensive list of different types of Chinese activities to build a new order in the Middle East. To what extent do you see China's order building in the region as aimed at displacing, undermining, or decreasing U.S. influence in the region? It's an interesting question because on one hand, I would say the fact that China is institutionalizing these relations in all of these ways and more, I just described kind of a subset of the broader tools that China's using. But I do think that using these institutionalized methods and by emphasizing how important countries are in this region to China for its its broader goals, I think that is building quite a bit of legitimacy in the eyes of countries in the region. I also do think that many countries in the region see China as sharing their values. So whether that's around sovereignty or South-South cooperation or you know having more of a voice for countries in the global South in international organizations. So when you think about it in that way, I do think that China gets quite a bit of, of traction with the norms that it's using in these forums and in these other foreign policy tools. I would also say the fact that China does not incorporate an emphasis on human rights or democracy or, or many of the values that the U.S. promotes on the international stage, the fact that China is not doing that and is emphasizing sovereignty as a way to shield countries from criticism regarding these issues, I also think that resonates. And so the way I look at this is, you know, over decades, this is not a new phenomenon, really from the late 90s to today, China in a, a very comprehensive way has built its relations and ways to interact with countries throughout this region. And all of that's occurring at a time when countries in the Middle East are questioning the U.S. role. So countries, they are concerned about the U.S., shifting its emphasis towards Asia. They're concerned regarding, you know, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. There's, you know, specific concerns in some countries. You know, for example, Saudi Arabia in 2019, when Houthi missiles hit part of Saudi's oil infrastructure, there were concerns that from their perspective, the U.S., 
did not do enough. Last year in 2022, there was an attack on, on Abu Dhabi, also by the Houthi, that are you know, obviously Iranian-backed groups, that the Emirates was deeply concerned regarding the U.S. response. So I think in this environment, when there's insecurity about the U.S. role, China's playing a more prominent economic and political role. And increasingly, countries in the region see themselves as having alternatives that they, you know, have multiple great powers that have an interest in the region. I do think all of this is coming together to make China have a, a much more prominent and influential role in the region broadly. Don, it seems like what you're saying is that China is providing an alternative in which countries could turn to. But yet, at the same time, in the examples that you mentioned, whether that's Saudi Arabia or the Emirates, they are asking the United States to do more to address their security concerns. And China's not really willing to fill the security gap that you mentioned. In other words, China is providing an alternative, but cannot or is not willing to replace the role the United States played. Is that a correct assessment? Right. No, absolutely. And I think this is one that's kind of the really interesting dynamics, because again, in my interviewing in those countries, you know, thinking through that and posing very specific questions about these issues. And there does not appear to be the view from countries in the region that China is going to play more of a security role. And I think in certain ways, that's how China differentiates itself as being different from the U.S. in PRC's mind in a positive way. But it's very interesting to think through in the longer term what that looks like if we have a region where China is the predominant economic and political power, but the U.S. continues to be the predominant security provider. That's definitely a lot to think through. One additional question about the larger picture before we move to discussing the Israel-Hamas conflict. In your book, you note that China isn't a simple revisionist or status quo power in the Middle East. What exactly did you mean by that? So the way I look at it in my work is um, norm convergent versus norm divergent from the, the liberal order. And so the first thing I would say is I think you see a real functional difference between politics and economics and foreign aid and security issues. So in economic and political and foreign aid relations, in some cases, China's behavior diverges from the liberal order. Often that is associated with tools in which it's emphasizing sovereignty, because as you know, there's this tension between sovereignty and the liberal order that's inherent in the, the norms that are behind those different systems. But because China focuses on sovereignty so much, often you have that divergence. You also, because of the relationship between state and market in China's system, both its internal economy as well as its external behavior, you often end up in its unilateral economic activities of you know, providing support to Chinese companies, for example. You end up with norm-divergent behavior. And then on the foreign aid front, as I discussed before, it's diverges from the liberal order because it doesn't have political conditionality associated with aid. So these are the the divergent pieces are the aspects I think we, we tend to see emphasized a great deal in the media or in scholarship. But for me, part of what's interesting is the areas in which China's behavior actually converges with the liberal order. And so on the economic and political front, some examples of the ways in which it converges you know, one would be that they're pursuing free trade agreements, you know, which are very much in alignment with the liberal order. 
They're also advocating for the use of multilateral mechanisms for conflict resolution. So this could be for the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. It could be for the Syrian civil war. It could be for other conflicts. They very much advocate for the use of the United Nations or the use of multilateral mechanisms. They also, you know, for example, provide tariff-free trade to many of the least developed countries in the global south. Then that is also converging with the liberal order. And just south-south cooperation broadly, I would say, is in alignment with the liberal order. So on the political and economic side and foreign aid, most of it diverges, but there are some interesting elements in which it converges. But then when you look at security, almost all of China's security behavior in the Middle East converges with the liberal order. So United Nations peacekeeping operations or participating in multilateral anti-piracy activities off the Gulf of Aden or having limited conventional arms sales that are not growing over time, that that's very much in alignment with the norm of non-proliferation. They stress the need for nuclear-free zones, which is also in alignment with non-proliferation. So really what I see is on the security front, the vast majority of China's behavior in the Middle East really does converge with the order. It's more in the unilateral economic activities and the focus on sovereignty that you tend to have divergence from the liberal order in the political and economic realm. So when you put all of this together in terms of ways China is norm-convergent as well as norm-divergent, it seems that China has a different approach towards the Middle East than the United States, but it also continues to welcome the United States as having an active presence in the region. Is that a correct characterization? Yeah, I think that is actually, I think that's a good way to frame it from the standpoint that China has interests. We talked about that earlier. They very much want resources and markets and they want, you know, more support from countries in the region and in various forums. But I think at this point, they're still very comfortable with a U.S. role in the Middle East. You know, they don't have territorial aspirations and they don't have a desire to play the security role that the U.S. does. So I think this is one region where there's actually a lot of shared interests between the U.S. and China. Compared to other regions, I think there's more potential for cooperation in the Middle East between the two powers. What we're seeing right now is one example where we could actually see both countries, the United States and China, cooperating more, and that is to prevent the Israel-Hamas conflict from further spiraling. To date, we aren't seeing China be too active in the conflict aside from diplomatic meetings But I wanted to get your sense. How do you assess China's approach to the conflict? And are you seeing China do more behind the scenes that we're not seeing publicly? So I think it's important to take a step back and and think about this a bit more in historical terms, just to understand China's behavior since October 7th. So first, during the Mao era, China was actually providing material support to various Palestinian groups to support their efforts in what China viewed as national liberation. And so that that way, they were very active during the Mao era. But in the post-Cold War era, their interactions in relation to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict have been quite different. They established state-to-state relations with Israel in 1992. But as I said earlier, their behavior does still tend to be a bit Palestinian-leaning. So I'll talk about what I mean in that case. Since 2002, they've had a special envoy to attempt to contribute to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. 
And I do want to take a, a quick minute just to actually give you a feel for what China's stance is on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, because this is something that their statements now are very much consistent with what they've been saying for multiple decades on this issue. So their stance on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is that they want to see peaceful negotiations and end to violence, a two-state solution with an independent Palestinian state. They want to see land for peace based on pre-1967 lines, as well as a return of the Golan Heights to Syria. They want a cessation of Israeli settlements in occupied territories. And they want to see an international supervisory mechanism that's established that would be a multilateral effort in order to resolve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Also, before October 7th, this you know is their broader stance, but each time you had a flare-up in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, you did have the PRC coming out with strong criticism of Israel when it had concerns regarding disproportionate response or when it had concerns about violations of international law from, from a Chinese perspective. And even if you look at UN Security Council voting over decades, you often had a difference in voting between the US and China on this issue. So that's the history. And so now thinking about it as far as the the current approach, I think the things to really keep in mind is that China sees the Palestinian-Israeli conflict as the core issue of security in the Middle East. And it is attempting to stay consistent with its past stance. So all of the statements that have been coming out since October 7th are very much in alignment with how they framed this in the past. They do not want to have this escalate into a broader regional war. They've also had something new, as I described earlier, up till October 7th, you really could argue that China had very strong relations with Israel. And although China was Palestinian leaning, Israel in general still thought China could play a constructive role or didn't find that Palestinian leaning behavior as threatening. I think you could say over the last year or so, there has been more debate in Israeli think tanks and among various actors in Israel regarding what the relationship could look like going forward or worries about how the Palestinian leaning behavior could threaten Israeli interests. But up until October 7th, I would say there were still very strong relations between China and Israel. But now you have some tensions, uh, primarily because there's a worry from an Israeli government standpoint that China is not specifically calling out Hamas and specifically that China is not labeling Hamas's activities on October 7th as terrorism. And I think it is important to kind of discuss and think through why China is doing that. And so first, I mean, Obviously, October 7th, there was terrorism. There was horrible things that happened, you know, in Israel that are are categorically unacceptable. And the PRC has come out with statements saying that, you know, violence towards civilians, targeting civilians is completely unacceptable in general and that there's a, a deep worry and a deep condemnation of that behavior. But the reason why China is not calling out Hamas specifically is because they do not view this issue, the broader Palestinian-Israeli conflict, through the lens of terrorism. They see the October 7th incident as just a flare-up in the broader Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And so although they don't put it in this language, they very much, the way in which they're conceptualizing it is 
as a national liberation movement, as this kind of historical issue that continues into the contemporary era. But going back over decades, you don't, China is not referring to Hamas as a terrorist organization. It's not, you know, referring to it in this way. It very explicitly attempts to not. And so more broadly, given the current context, I do think China truly does want to see the Palestinian-Israeli conflict resolved in the longer term. I think it has an interest in being a mediator. I think it has an interest in not having this conflict spill over into other parts of the region in a way that would be very detrimental to Chinese interests broadly. Thank you for laying out the history to provide the context that China's current behavior is consistent with its prior positions and practices. But going back to my original question, what do you see as China actually doing to advance what you laid out as its interests? That China wants the region to be peaceful. China wants to be a mediator to prevent the conflict from spilling over. What are you seeing as concrete actions that China is doing, particularly via its increased economic and political weight in the region? So first, I have to say, it's hard to know what China is doing behind closed doors in relation to many of these issues, right? Because, as you know, China has very positive relations with Iran as well as the Arab states, Turkey, you know, other countries in the region. Their special envoy is going around meeting with various regional leaders and expressing China's concerns about this becoming a, a broader conflict. And that's very much in alignment with how their special envoy has behaved in the past. On the issue of how they see themselves as contributing at this point, I think that the way that they conceptualize this is by maintaining consistency, attempting to have action in the UN Security Council, by continuing to have a Palestinian-leaning approach, I think they are attempting to add some balance into this equation. I'm not saying that that necessarily is going to result in resolution of the issue, but I think in their view, both historically as well as you know what's happening right now, having countries that stand behind the Palestinian cause is an important way to advocate for a, a longer term solution. So I think they they see very much what's happening right now is because there is not there has not been a two state solution. There has not been you know a negotiated resolution. So I think it's hard in some ways to frame what they're doing because it very much is just coming out with statements. You know, it's being active in the UN Security Council. It's attempting to demonstrate their continued support for the Palestinians. But since I don't know what's occurring behind closed doors and the degree to which China is talking to Iran or Arab states. Or obviously, they're talking to the Palestinians. And they also, you know, historically, they have had positive relations even with groups like Hezbollah. If you look back to the Syrian civil war, when their special envoy for the Syrian civil war was attempting to bring parties together, one of the parties they were meeting with would have been Hezbollah. So China is uniquely positioned to talk to a number of the actors in this current scenario, express their concerns, express desires for restraint. But since it's it's not a transparent system in that way, I, I don't know what's happening behind closed doors. And I know I don't follow this as closely as you, but I haven't seen any public reporting that China's special envoy to the Middle East has had meetings with Iran, 
Hamas or Hezbollah on the recent conflict? And maybe I'm missing something, but are you tracking that they even have any public mentions of meetings or any closed door meetings between China and these three actors? Not that I've seen on Iran, Hamas, and Hezbollah. The reporting, I don't recollect all of the countries that were in the list, but those were not on the recent visit of the special envoy. I find it curious that those three key actors have not been on the roster of meetings with China's special envoy to the Middle East. And it's made me wonder, is this because China is trying to meet with all the other players before meeting them? Or is it because China doesn't want to meet these three actors or be portrayed as responsible for the conflict? I know this is a very opaque process uh, trying to understand China, but how do you interpret this? So I don't necessarily see it as unusual at this point from the standpoint of historically, when you look at the way the special envoy would operate, you know, it would meet with Saudi, it would meet with Egypt, it would meet with the Palestinian Authority, with the state of Palestine that it's recognized since 1988. But for example, when it would meet with Hezbollah, with the Syrian special envoy, that would be more at a larger gathering where all of these actors were present and then they would meet. Not that they necessarily would take a trip specifically to go meet with Hezbollah, for example, right? So I don't know if it's that unusual, but it's an interesting question. Great, thank you. I did want to get your thoughts on how you see in the coming weeks, if this conflict were to continue to escalate, if you see any potential that China may step up and do more, particularly with respect to trying to rein in Iran's direct involvement in the conflict. What is your sense there in terms of how willing China is to exert pressure or its influence over Iran? So I think it's unlikely that China is going to want to exert influence on Iran for a number of reasons. I think one is just in alignment with its longstanding concern regarding sanctions, that both kind of philosophically, it wouldn't necessarily want to apply sanctions. But I think also China is very skeptical regarding the effectiveness of sanctions in modifying behavior of a state. So I think it's unlikely, for example, that they would want to implement sanctions. And I think just in general, I think they would be very cautious about applying pressure to Iran, again, because of concerns that they couldn't modify the behavior, but also they could potentially have a worry that if they apply pressure on Iran, Iran could feel as though it had even less friends in the international system, and that could result in further destabilizing behavior potentially, right? So under any scenario, I think it's unlikely that China would want to apply pressure to Iran. I think they see their value added as being able to talk to Iran and bring Iran into the process, being able to you know, express concerns. I do also think that as time goes on, there's already been some announcements regarding some Chinese humanitarian aid. I think they will provide more. And I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see more kind of debates in the UN Security Council over various resolutions. But, but I don't see that China wants or is, is indicating that it is willing to apply any sort of specific pressure on Iran or on any other actor, you know, on the Palestinians or on any other group. Thank you, Donnie. I think I understand what China is doing in terms of trying to stay consistent with its prior positions, but also recognizing that it may have limited ability to influence some of the actors in the region. 
So outside of what China is doing to prevent the conflict from spreading, are we also seeing additional efforts on China's end to take advantage of the conflict between Israel and Hamas to advance China's influence in the region? We're seeing some reporting that potentially China might be using this as conflict to increase its influence in the region over that of the United States. We're seeing some reporting discussing China's echoing of some of the disinformation that Russia and other actors are putting out about the conflict. But how do you view what China is doing in terms of advancing its interests in the Middle East, given the context of what's happening with the Israel-Hamas conflict? So I think probably the most substantial impact on China in the Middle East going forward is that the, the stance that they're taking on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and on the, the recent Israel-Hamas war Their stance, it resonates, I think, in a very strong way with the Arab world, with Iran, with Turkey, with the Muslim-majority world, and with many parts of the global south. So I think you could make the argument in the longer term, the fact that China has stayed consistent and has stayed relatively Palestinian-leaning in its comments, that just by doing that, it's building legitimacy and it's potentially going to, after this conflict is resolved, that there will be a more positive view of China compared to the U.S. So I think that that's one element of it. I would say that PRC officials, I think, are being very careful in the way that they word their statements through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the U.N. Security Council, in the U.N. General Assembly. I think they're being very careful to stick to the talking points about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and not explicitly make this about the U.S. or about competition with the U.S. So I think they, they are being careful in that way. But when you start to look at Chinese media, whether it be you know Global Times, China Daily, you know, various media sources within China, you definitely are starting to see a, this linkage between this issue and a blaming of the U.S. or you know tying it in to a broader narrative of competition with an hegemonic U.S. But I do think it's important to try to think through like the ways in which the Chinese government in its official statements are portraying it versus the way it's starting to manifest itself in Chinese media and then within social media. And I think it's too early to tell what the impact will be and that there's a need for some really you know, deep analysis of that to understand that. But I do think that you know, ultimately the, the kind of broader traction that the way in which China is approaching this is likely going to resonate with countries in the region, I think that will benefit them. I think the issue really is how far does this conflict spread and how much does it create instability in the region? Because arguably, if you start to really have a lot more interstate war, that's going to be very destructive to China's interests, whether that's acquiring resources or their you know, citizens that are in the region or their businesses that are operating. So I think there's the potential for everything that's happening right now to be quite detrimental to Chinese interests. Thank you. It is interesting that Chinese officials have been very careful in what they're saying, whereas Chinese media and social media, as you mentioned, have taken on narratives of blaming the United States for stirring up instability globally and in the Middle East. I do wonder to what extent the Chinese media is able to push these narratives without the Chinese government's approval. So it might be that at least officially China is trying to take a cautious stand, but it is using other actors to try to push a narrative 
that could benefit China in the long term at the cost of the United States. I agree. I, I'm, I'm not trying to imply. I mean, obviously, most of the media outlets are state controlled. And as, as you know, it has to be allowed. And even in the social media space where you're seeing a lot of this occurring, the, the PRC has the ability to shut it down. It's just what I think is interesting to think through is, is all of that's occurring. How much of that is for a domestic political audience within the PRC versus a, a more global audience? But as you said, it is in the international sphere and it does, I think, align with China's longer term views that they've expressed about worries in regards to U.S. hegemony and the shared concerns that many countries in the Middle East and the global south have about the way in which the U.S. interacts with the world. Again, I think it is interesting, though, to see kind of the differences in the way the official government statements are varying from what they're allowing in the media. And can I ask a follow-up question on that? Just trying to understand, why would China allow more disinformation domestically within China about this conflict and be more cautious on the external front? Is it because these types of messages tap into existing anti-Western, anti-U.S. narratives or nationalism within China? I'm just trying to understand why why do we see this domestic versus international media distinction? Right. And so I think I think part of it is because of the linkages to kind of an anti-West, anti-US, and this more nationalist narrative. But I think part of what's deeply problematic about it right now is especially when you look in the social media space, you know, there increasingly is, is I think, a very toxic nature of not just anti-Americanism and not just anti-Israel, but you know, increasingly more anti-Semitic type of posts and statements that I personally have, have trouble understanding why they would allow that to occur in an environment where they're able to control that type of discourse, why they're allowing it to become so prevalent internally within their own borders. I, I'm not quite sure what the thinking is other than the, the ties to anti-Americanism or wanting to build up nationalism. Thank you, Don. We could probably continue this conversation for hours, but in the interest of time, we'll need to wrap up. I want to close with one final question for you. In terms of thinking through what the United States should do, given the constraints that you've laid out in terms of how China thinks about its approach and foreign policy in the Middle East, is there anything more that we should be pushing China to do in the Middle East? And to what extent do you think China is willing to step up with respect to the current Israel-Hamas conflict? Yeah, it's. I think it's interesting because there's the longer term question and there's the, the shorter term question. And so, I mean, in the longer term, I do think as we think through U.S. policy in relation to China and the Middle East, we need to think through what, what that region looks like in the longer term. And that at this point, as we discussed earlier, that China is a very prominent economic and, and political actor, but isn't necessarily wanting to play the security role the U.S. does. So China's not necessarily attempting to displace the U.S. So as we craft policy, I think we need to think about it in those terms. I think it's also important to keep in mind that China's been building its relations over decades. This is not a new phenomenon. This is not a result of great power competition. This is not, you know, it's not something that's developed over the last five years. It is this longstanding involvement. I think countries in the region see it in that way. And from a policymaking standpoint, we should also consider it 
in that framing. I think another important way to look at this would be some of those shared interests that we discussed earlier. I mean, the, the Middle East may be a region where in the longer term, there's opportunities for cooperation on terrorism, on, you know, on counterterrorism, on counter piracy, peacekeeping. So I think in, in the longer term, I think we need to look at it in that way. In the shorter term, based on the behavior that I've seen to date, I'm assuming China's actions going forward are going to basically be the same. I think they're going to continue to have the same talking points. They may attempt to bring countries together. As you said, the special envoy may try to meet with more and more countries. There may be an opportunity for China and the U.S. together to get to to get all of the parties in a room to start talking through these issues. But I don't think China is going to significantly impact the outcome of events in the, the near term. I think they don't want to put the pressure. I think in their mind, there's actually probably not a lot they can do to end the, the current conflict on the ground. Thank you very much, Don. It also seems like perhaps to add to your point, China doesn't want to bear the responsibility for ending the conflict in the Middle East either. They, they don't want to pick sides. And one reason they don't want to pick sides in general is they don't want to get pulled in to conflicts. They don't want their allies or partners to be involved in conflict and for them to be drawn into that. I think it is in their interest actually to stay relatively removed from these issues. Well, thank you so much, Don. Fascinating discussion of, despite the fact that China is more and more actually involved in the Middle East, how when they are facing an actual conflict between Israel and Hamas, that their priority and their interest is still to be relatively removed and to try to at least engage in some diplomatic efforts, but being very cautious of what it's doing officially. Thank you, Don, for explaining some of the complexities regarding China's involvement in the Middle East, but also in the global South as a whole. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me.